Tommy. Good afternoon, everybody. I think perhaps a, a, a wee word of introduction um, as to what I'm going to think about in the title um, is, is appropriate to start with. We've entitled it The Follower of Jesus, um, but in fact a lot of what we're going to look at is um, in the Old Testament, um, the chapter we've just looked at in the reading, and, and it's therefore um, the follower of Jesus in the sense that he taught what his father had taught him and what his father had set in motion from the beginning and quite a lot of it really is um, the follower of God, the follower of, of, of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the Bible, um, which is reflected in his son and in the teaching of his son. Having done that preamble, though, um, I would also like to say that uh, it's, it's sad, isn't it, that a lot of what is talked about in respect of marriage today is negative. I've not done the statistics I don't think they're very attractive when you do do them. Um, but marriages don't last very long today. There are problems about people um, dropping out of marriage and going into a second, or, or not even bothering with a second, but certainly going into a second relationship. And, and the divorce seems to be more of a headline than marriage itself. There are bigger issues, aren't there, um, in religious circles, especially about same-sex marriages, um, even this week, there was big debate in the Synod, wasn't it, the Church of England, about this. Um, and people are divided very, very strongly down one way or the other on that particular issue. And they're all negative. They're, they're, they're all things that are wrong with marriage. They're all things that are challenging marriage. So I thought what I wanted to do this afternoon was to be a bit more positive and to try and put in positive um, aspect to this issue which is part of human life and has always been part of human life from the very beginning and is something that ebbs and flows. Sometimes uh, one society will, will really, really cling to it and make a lot of it and other will discard it and, and regard it as something, of, of something indifferent almost. So we're, we're going to start in Genesis 2 and we're going to look at what the um, the early chapters there tell us about it because to me this is where the story starts and what we're going to try and work out here are a couple of principles and, and principles that um, you might have seen before or you might not have seen before as, as we read through the chapter it tells us about a garden we know about this garden of Eden with its rivers and its trees and its abundance um, we know also that it is a place where there is abundant food and that only one tree is forbidden, that in the middle of the garden, and that the man can come and take of it as he chooses. In verse 15 of the chapter, it tells us that the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. Now, I don't know what that meant in terms of the work he had to do, because the next chapter, chapter 3, will tell us that thorns and thistles and um, a resistance to growth in the ground were only introduced at a later point. So this verse 15 is telling us of a place that doesn't produce thorns and thistles, that there are no difficulties with growing. Um, and what dressing it and keeping it means um, is, is a, a lesser intensity certainly than any farmer or any gardener would have to do today. 
That was what the man was put in the garden to do. He could eat freely from the trees. We're not told he had to do any ploughing. We're not told he had to do any particular cultivating um, activities at all. It, it's almost as though he's just tidying up and looking after it. And, and the reason I'm telling you that is it will perhaps become apparent in a moment. But the job that then has to be tackled comes through in verses 18 to 20. Because the Lord God recognised that the man was on his own. He'd made him that way. He'd made a man, a single man from the dust of the ground. But he was on his own. And he said it's not a good thing that that should be so. And so he makes, or determines to make, something that will be a companion to him. And the first tactic on that seems to be that the whole of creation is brought before Adam. Well, well, some have challenged whether it's the whole or not, but certainly a lot of it is brought to Adam. Animal after animal is paraded before him, and it's at this point that he gives them their names. That's, that's emerging in verse 19. When that process is over, the conclusion is drawn, there's still nobody appropriate. There's no companion for Adam here. There's nobody who can stand alongside him and be his equal, be his soulmate, be anything at all for him. These are all different. These are all separate. And they're not part of the process. And so verse 21 happens. And verse 21 introduces, introduces us to the way in which the woman was made. Well, again, we're probably familiar with this process of the sleep that falls on Adam, the rib that's taken, and the process that God brings to bear upon that rib to make a woman. And this one, this new creature, this female, is very compatible with the man and becomes his companion going forward. And there is really no problem with that particular part of it. But what I want to stress, what I want to stress quite strongly, in fact, is that the woman is made as a companion for man. It doesn't say wife at this point. That comes at the end of the chapter. But when she's first made, she is a companion. That's the motivation that is brought through in these verses for making the woman. Not even for creation of a second generation. It is a companion for the man, and that's the purpose for making this particular woman. Notice, notice especially, it had to be this way, didn't it? This chapter, too, and the details we've looked at, come before sin enters into the world. The woman is a unique creation. She is perfect just as the man is perfect on the same level, whatever that was. Greater than the animals, but able to be in a special relationship between the two. Verse 24 then starts with a therefore. A big therefore. Because of this, because of this companion requirement, because of the way that she's made, because of the origin of the female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And here is the design 
of the human race. Here is the sort of building blocks that begin it. Here are the first two people who are going to actually make this human race begin. And it's because of that that each succeeding generation has to move on a bit and has to move forward in the process of making the next generation happen. Proverbs will later write, Whoso finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favour of the Lord. Well, in the first instance, Adam was provided with his wife as a favour from the Lord. And it's therefore a blessing from God. But I go back to the point that I made earlier. She is a companion, and I can't remember precisely what the New King James Version said. The uh, King James Version says, help meet for him. Uh, I think it said companion for him, even in the, in the, in the New King James. But I'd ask the question, what is she going to help him with? help comes several times in the text what is she going to help him with there's no washing to do here um, they don't wear clothes at this point it tells you at the end of the verse of the chapter they're naked there's no washing to do there's no mending clothes to do there's probably no cooking to do even if you can cook um, there's no issues about food because it falls off the trees or you can pick it off the trees it's it's Something that doesn't need a lot of work. What is she going to help him with? Is it this tilling of the ground? Well, we know that that's not an arduous task. We've, we've thought a little bit about that. What is this woman there for in terms of helping him? What is she a companion about? Or what is she actually trying to achieve? Or what is God trying to achieve by putting her alongside the man? Well... You can perhaps come with your own answers to that one. But what I'm going to suggest to you is that she is there to help him serve his God. And that she's there to actually encourage him to turn towards his God. There was a purpose in making man. There was a reason for God putting man upon the earth. That reason was to respond to God. That's, that's the whole issue about free will, isn't it? Um, which is a topic all of its own, but it's something that God hoped the man would exercise in order to choose him. And I suggest to you the woman is provided so that that can be encouraged and that that can come about more readily. And a choice, therefore, of partner, the picking of, of the person that's going to be this companion has got overtones to it that are very, very far-reaching. The happiness of the future age, the happiness of the age that where man dwells with God, far exceeds anything that is happiness now. Far exceeds it. But a companion that helps along the way, a companion that encourages and is encouraged in turn, is surely the best way of getting to that happiness of the future age. The choice of a partner is therefore vital. For if there is tension, if there is difference of opinion, if there is 
an incompatibility in the in the selection at the beginning and the and in the coming together at the beginning, then it's unlikely that the encouragement will happen and the help will happen. And remember when it was first instituted, this was before the problems that have come from sinfulness. The issue here then is that choosing a wife, bringing these two together, could almost be said to be a matter of life and death. So sadly, it didn't even last a chapter, because the woman in the next chapter we know led astray the man and introduced the issues of sin into their relationship and that relationship would change forever and with it would come a whole host of problems as a consequence. My purpose this afternoon, my principal purpose I think, is, is to go back to the purpose that God had when he first made this happen and to show that the roots of that, the, the underlying principles of that relationship are still there. <coughs> can still be there, more imperfect than they were when Adam and Eve were first introduced to each other, but nevertheless are still there and are something that still have as their target or ought to have as their target an entry into the age that is to come. But sadly, as we go through the scriptures and as we turn our pages in our Bibles, we get example after example of things that have gone wrong and have gone rather off course. But let, let's think of some of the issues of, not some of the issues, some of the examples of, of marriages that are there, that are given to us as records as to how things might be. Oh, think, for instance, first of all, of Jacob and what happened when he chose a wife. We're not, we're not going to look at the text. So I'm, going to, I'm going to sort of indulge things here a bit and, and assume you know this story. How that Rachel and Leah... Both became his wives, and that Rachel was the one that he was attracted to. Now, is, is it a good example? Is, is, is their marriage a good example of how things should be? Remember, Jacob is the third in a line of three, starting with his grandfather Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, all of whom have received the great big promises God gives in Genesis. Are these wives helping Jacob? along the way towards achieving the promises, achieving what God wants him to achieve. Well, Jacob ends his life still known as one of the fathers, still known as a man who had kept his faith throughout his life. So whatever his wives said or whatever influence they brought to bear, it didn't actually deflect from that purpose for him. And it probably, in fact was a good influence. And I've drawn up a little list here of, of marriages that are good and marriages that are not so good. And, and I've put that one in the good column um, as, as a marriage that made things happen and brought about as the next one I've got on my list, Ruth and Boaz, um, the, the comment would be made when they came together, may you be like Rachel and Leah who built the whole house of Israel. Um, that they had actually been such a good family back in that time that they had built the whole house of Israel with the twelve sons which become the fathers of the twelve tribes. 
Ruth and Boaz then, going further into um, the, the, the scriptures and the Bible. Ruth coming back from um, a land of famine, um, coming back in sadness with her mother-in-law, um, and coming back to eventually marry Boaz, and, and marry into what ultimately leads to David as king, and ultimately then beyond that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I don't think anybody would say that that was a bad marriage at all. Those two coming together, it, it's a good story. It's a good book to read in the, in the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. Um, and it's well worth looking at what happened to those two as they come together later in the book. Uh, let's pick one out of the New Testament. Um, Aquila and Priscilla I've picked. Would we put that in the good column or the bad column? Um, th- we don't know an awful lot about them, I, I admit, but their names pop up all over the place in the letters of Paul. Were they an encouragement towards the kingdom of God? Did they help each other? Well, they helped a lot of other people. Um, there's a man called Apollos who didn't quite understand fully. They take him on one side in their home and they teach him how to understand more fully. They're a companion to Paul on, on several occasions because they happen to be in the same trade of making tents. So that, that home was one to which people could go and learn of great things, great principles of the new faith that was spreading throughout the Roman world, that of Christianity. And Aquila and Priscilla push it along whenever they can and, and open up their home to those who need to know and those who are willing to come and, and be taught and, and, and understand the gospel. And, and, and that to me is, is two, two separate individuals who are greater than the sum of their parts. Together they are very, very much better than they are separate. And, and we can perhaps think about examples of that that we're aware of as well. It's, it's something that has worked and it matches that pattern which I, I hope I made clear back in Genesis chapter 2. It's, it's a marriage that was good. And let's roll back a bit and think about one or two others. How do we regard the marriage of David and Bathsheba? How would you actually put them into the categories? Were they good or were they bad? And, and it's not that straightforward, is it? Because the marriage itself, when it happens, eventually, um, is probably one of the better ones. But the origins of that marriage are founded on horror and, and major difficulty that nearly led to the unseating of David from his throne. So there are circumstances sometimes which when allowed to grow when allowed to enter into the thinking of marriages are not helpful at all and certainly I doubt that the um, well we know from, from the comments made by the prophet to David that things were not good and were not, should not have happened in the way that they did in that particular marriage what about Samson where would we put Samson and his wife, who he goes and takes from the Philistines and says, I, I, I want her to be my wife. And the comments made in the record because he sought opportunity against the Philistines. 
So the motivation on the face of it looks poor for the basis of such a marriage. In fact, it didn't get much beyond the marriage feast, did it? That particular first one. And, and, and there seems to be a poor basis for marriage. But it's left on record for us to think about. And then what about our friend Solomon, who multiplied wives? And I'll try and make a comment towards that on that issue uh, towards the end. But it would look as though the thousand women that he had were all poor choices. None of them seem to have encouraged him in the way that we've been thinking. None of them seem to have pushed him in the direction of his God and towards the era that was to come. And despite the fact that his reign is a glorious one at the beginning and, and the pinnacle, really, of, of the kingdom that was in Israel, Solomon chose badly when he picked his wives because they came with baggage. And the baggage was a foreign god, a god that was not the god of Israel. And instead of him influencing their belief, they influenced his. And there is perhaps a major principle to think about, that faith before marriage is probably a major, major issue to get sorted out and to get understanding on. Because unless you're going towards the same goal, there is likely to be conflict and there is likely to be unhappiness of some sort further along the way. Let's, let's leave that then for a while and, and go to the book of Ephesians. And let's pick up some New Testament principle now and, and, and begin to think in terms of what the symbology means. And you'll find here, it's in chapter 5 of Ephesians, they were actually still back in Genesis 2, really, because it's going to quote from there. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 5, a picture of the church. Verse 24. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And the picture is held up here of marriage being a, a sort of symbol of the church, of Christ and his church. The church being the bride in this particular instance. And, and it goes on then to, to amplify this, this idea and this picture. Verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word and might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot, wrinkle or anything, but should be holy without blemish. And so men ought to love their wives as their own bodies, for he, he that loves his wife loves himself. And then verse 32 all of what I've been telling you is a mystery. It, it, it's an, a, a hidden fact, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So, it's giving us here, the Paul to the Ephesians is giving us here um, a picture of the, that marriage is actually foreshadowing. And notice, right in the middle of it, verse 31, 
he quotes from our Genesis 2 chapter that we've been thinking about as his backup for this. It's, it's that motivation from the very beginning that is actually going to portray this. Now think about how, how, how it all matches. Remember what we saw in Genesis 2, how the man had to be put to sleep and, and a rib taken out of his side. And think now of the spiritual implications of that and how the church, how the Christian body of believers begins. What happens? What's the real root of the belief of the church? Is it not in the crucifixion of the Son of God and the fact that he was put to sleep? And that part of that putting to sleep involved a spear going into his side and piercing it? And that <coughs> that gave birth to the, the principles of the death and resurrection of Jesus and what the New Testament begins to call a new creation, a new beginning, a new regime of things where people come to Christ and are as a consequence part of his new bride when he finally completes his work the revelation tells us that he will restore access to the tree of life his bride will be able to partake again and Eve will, in a sense, walk a second time in the Garden of Eden, having gone back with her new husband, with Christ himself. And all others will have been rejected. And all the problems of the past thousands of years will have been wiped away. But, but there's something else here, isn't there? Because whenever a wife is taken into a husband's family, certainly in more traditional societies perhaps than our own. She's actually beginning to be part of his family also. So certainly in, in days gone by in Scotland, the wife would move to the castle of the Lord if, if she married a Lord. She, she would go and be part of his family. He wouldn't go and be part of hers. And that's true here, isn't it? Everyone who becomes married to Christ, becomes part of his father's family <coughs> and part of the family of which God is the head. And, and that implies following family rules. It, it's taking on board the, the thinking, the culture, the, the way of doing things of that particular family. And for, at, at the very simplest level, that, that, that would be accepting of baptism and accepting of breaking of bread and remembrance and all the other rules that are involved in faithfully following her husband and the principles of the family that he is part of. So the imagery is there as well. And it's all positive if we follow that imagery. Because it's all leading to a future age and a future time where their happiness is greater than it ever was before. How are we going for time? Can't see the clock. I'd like to spend just a few minutes in an unusual place. I'd like us to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. In, in the scriptures, there's, there's no marriage ceremony. You, you don't get one anywhere. You don't get a set of vows. You don't, you don't have what we now say at a marriage ceremony anywhere in the Bible. And, and in fact, 
those vows only come into existence in this country from the Catholic Church back in something like the 14th century. But that doesn't mean to say there isn't a commitment in terms of marriage. And, and we've seen to some degree that that's come through. But on the night that Rachel was given to Jacob, sorry, that Leah first was given to Jacob, that was a feast was made. And when the appropriate time came, she was taken to her husband. And the record tells us he didn't know it was Leah. Until the next morning and light came again, he didn't know it was Leah. He thought he'd married Rachel. So those two, Leah and Jacob, had not stood side by side and exchanged vows as such in the day before. For he would have known then who he was marrying. It was only before witnesses. The, the, the assembled people at the, at the feast that she is taken to his tent. And that seems to have been the way in which the marriage was conducted back in those times. And to some degree, in some countries, it still happens like that today. But Ecclesiastes 5 gives us a bit of a warning, because we take vows, we enter into vows, because that's the way we do marriages now. But have a look at what this chapter says. Opening of the chapter, Ecclesiastes 5. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Okay? Well, you wouldn't think that was talking much about what we're on about. Verse 2 then says, Be not rash with your mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You're on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Well, what words are you going to be saying when you go into the house of God? Well, it seems to be that he's talking about a vow. Verse 4, when you vow a vow unto God, defer not to pay. He's no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. In other words, he's saying, if you make a vow before God, don't do it lightly. Don't say that this is something that... Well, I think it's good to do today, but tomorrow I'll forget about it. When you go and pay a vow, or make a vow, be sure you carry it out, says the writer of Ecclesiastes. And verse 5 and 6 are interesting as well. Better is it that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Surely, suffer not your mouth to cause your sin, your flesh to sin. Neither say before the angel that it was an error. Therefore should God be angry. Wherefore should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? In other words, it's no good saying, hmm, made a mistake there. Um, I'm going to undo the vow. Once it's made, it's made. And that vow should stand. And God is not going to take a good view if you break and reject that vow or try and change it as a consequence of a change of mind that comes afterwards. Making a vow before God's a very serious issue. Ecclesiastes is putting it in the general case here. Apply it to our situ situation and our thinking this afternoon of making vows before God when we promise to be faithful to somebody else throughout our lives. Think about what the purpose of it all is. The purpose 
is to get both partners into the kingdom of God and into an age that is to come. Right then, let's just spend two minutes thinking about um, throwing some ideas to you, really. I'm not, I'm not going to come to a conclusion with this. About the fact that the men of the Old Testament, particularly the kings like David and Solomon, are allowed to have multiple wives without any comment whatsoever from the Old Testament. No issue is said about it. The, the issue about Solomon is not about the multitude of wives, but the fact that they are wrong wives. They are ones that have come with the wrong gods. And even when you come to the symbol of Christ and his bride, is there really any comment made either in that particular issue? Well, here's some possibles, just possibles. The first of them is, is, is a cultural one. The first man who actually took more than one wife seems to be a man called Lamech, way back in the beginning of Genesis. And at that time, it would seem that there was a growth of violence in the earth, and maybe there were less women than men. Sorry, the other way around, less men than women. And, and if they were to actually be fruitful and multiply, then those women had to be brought into a relationship with a man and, and perhaps that's one way in which that was achieved. And men killing each other caused difficulties for that to take place. But the scripture doesn't comment in that way whatsoever and, 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 and that is, is my speculation. The faith of Islam today will allow you to take a maximum of four wives. I'm not sure why they've set four as the limit, um, but you can marry four wives in Islam if you so choose. But had you lived in Greek or Roman times, you would have been expected to marry just one. And had you lived in a Christian society thereafter, you would have been expected to marry just one. And the different cultures have different ways of doing it and different ways of thinking about it. So, so why, why do we think in Christianity that one wife is recommended? And Is it simply that the chapter 2 of Genesis says that a man shall take his wife and she will go to him and they be one flesh? It's not conclusive from chapter 2 of Genesis, is it? There was one Eve. There was only one man, one woman. There could not have been anything other way, any, any other solution to that particular situation. But further down history, it happens a lot. And David and Solomon are not condemned in any way whatsoever for the situations that they find themselves in with a multitude of wives. Well, here's, here's my final thought on it, and you take this away and think about it if you so choose or reject it or come hang me afterwards. Um, in the end of things, we are introduced, and we'll, we'll finish with this quote in a moment. There is a picture portrayed at the end of Revelation of the Bride of Christ, who comes to him in his final triumph and, and, and the final conclusion of things when the restoration of the world is brought about. Now that bride then is not one person. 
It, it's not one individual at all. It's a multitude of individuals. It's, it's all those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, as, as Revelation would term it, and made them white. And they become part of the Bride of Christ. And it's made up of masses of people from ages and cultures, from times and countries throughout history. So it's not just one individual, it's many. And I wonder whether that is being foreshadowed, perhaps, when Old Testament times allow it to happen without comment. I'll leave you to think about that. All of those individuals that make up the Bride of Christ have become part of the future age. Their issues, their ways of life, the way they've conducted themselves have been successful and they've been made immortal. So, the Bible starts with the story of a man and a woman coming together. That coming together is described as very good, but it's untested. It's, it's a virgin situation, and until the next chapter, when the testing starts, the weakness of that doesn't appear. The Bible ends with a similar story. A time when a man and a woman come together. When a new bride comes. And having come, is presented to her Lord in white robes. And all is perfect. Because that bride, that collection of people have come out of great tribulation. They have been tested. They have overcome. They have been successful in their relationship with their master. And that's the only marriage that really counts. Because that's the one that leads into the future age. There came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come hither. I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And blessed are they that are invited to be part of that marriage supper and that marriage time.